Hello, it's Thursday 11th of August. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowen and I will be discussing the outlook for travel and tourism in Malaysia with Tunku Datur Sri Dr. Iskandar Tunku Abdullah, Group Executive Chairman of the Melawar Group. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello wherever you are in the world and thanks for listening in. So today, Hannah and I are bringing it home to Malaysia to discuss the developing travel recovery with our special guest, Tunku Datuseri Iskandar Tunku Abdullah, who is the Group Executive Chairman of Melawa Group. Tunku is an experienced tourism industry leader in Malaysia. He is also Adjunct Professor at Taylor's University School of Hospitality, Tourism and Culinary Arts, a life member of ASEANTA and a former president of the Pacific Asia Travel Association, or PATA. So Tunku, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you doing and where are you? Yes, uh, good morning, Gary. Good morning, Hannah. Uh, I'm in Kuala Lumpur. I'm actually in my office. Uh, the sky is looking very gray, as it has been for the last few days. Um, but I'm, I'm ready to go anytime you want. <laughs> well, it's great. Thanks so much for your time. And we're looking forward to really digging deeply into what's happening in travel and tourism here in Malaysia over the next 30 minutes. But let's uh, take a little bit of a step back first. You have a long and distinguished career in the travel and tourism sector, but I'm quite interested that back in 1989, you became the president of PATA. Now, that was a very, very different era for travel and tourism. What are your recollections from that role? Yes, uh, Gary. Um, well, you're testing my memory now, going back as far as 1989. Yes, during that time, uh, travel and tourism was on the increase already uh, throughout the Asia-Pacific area. But there were, I would say there were limitations on capacity and uh, facilities to take care of the then upsurge. I would characterize the era as the era of the jumbo jet, where the Boeing 747, which is hardly ever used now, Cost uh, airports to have to be modified in order to take care or to cater for the passengers arriving on those jumbo jets. But uh, during the year before uh, 1989 or 1990, I had been assigned to lead the transformation of Pata that had uh, largely uh, remained the same organization since it uh, was formed about 35 years before that. And it had been growing, uh, I would say, growing and changing organically with no specific uh, strategic direction. So Pata uh, had to develop a plan, uh, which we called uh, Direction 2000, which was necessarily having to look at what Pata needed to do to adapt to the new millennium that was going to happen in a dozen years from then. And so we did that focusing, I think, a lot on marketing and research. And when I presided at the 1990 Vancouver conference, annual conference, I was very happy that PATA's members accepted and uh, adopted Direction 2000 plan resoundingly. And uh, I, I believe it did serve to position PATA to be able to enter the 21st century uh, more aware of its potential and uh, possibilities. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny that we're interviewing you this week, as last week we were interviewing Izzo Tigera from uh, from Pata as well. So we, we've kind of had the the old 
the old vanguard and and the the new uh, the new one as well so i mean certainly i think there are so many challenges that you know associations like pata have to go through to adapt like you say as they're growing and new member needs and new technologies and new trends and there's always that the modernization i think that always needs to happen isn't there yes indeed uh, i was i was in uh, hat nyai uh, in southern thailand uh, last weekend with liz and the uh, the executive board the new executive board and we were going through some of the um, initiatives or rather some of the uh, pre-positionings and uh, uh, and uh, the things we needed to do to take pata again into the new um, new period because uh, there has been many changes uh, the covid is especially one that that we have to uh, take into consideration going forward yeah absolutely so let's bring things more up to date then so the period from 2010 to 2019 so just before the pandemic hit that again was you know a really big time for change for travel and tourism in malaysia asean and apac so what did you see as those kind of key opportunities and um, challenges for malaysia's travel sector before covid hit <laughs> yes pre covid well, if the Jumbo Jet, the Boeing 747, was a symbol of the huge, huge upsurge of travel in the 1980s and 1990s, then the period from um, 2010, I suppose, was characterized by the uh, Airbus A380 Super Jumbo, and uh, at this time it was, this time it was the airlines of Asia and the Middle East, such as. Uh, Singapore Airlines and Emirates in particular that uh, use this uh, super jumbos uh, for the capacity and the range for their passengers crossing two or even three continents at a time in one hop carrying 500 to 800 passengers sometimes depending on the seat configuration. This supported the ability to travel uh, for the huge middle class, and I think the huge middle class of the uh, two world's largest population bases, China and India, were, were starting to travel or did start to travel and, uh, and, and did so right until pre-COVID. And actually, there were more opportunities uh, than challenges prior to COVID. The, the challenge was airport design at both ends, departure and arrival as well as capacity of destinations to be able to cope with 500, 800 guests, uh, tourists per aircraft is, uh, landing at one time, tour buses, hotel check-ins, and so on. However, these challenges were undoubtedly uh, opportunities for destinations that could make the necessary adjustments or changes to handle these um, larger number of visitors. That's a very neat and succinct summary of, of what was happening through the, the 2010s. And then we know what happened. COVID hit and we had borders closed for, for pretty much two years. Malaysia reopened its borders on the 1st of April this year. It removed the pre-flight and the on-arrival PCR testing one month later. So we've been open now for three or four months. What are some of the key observations that you've noticed as this recovery starts to kickstart? Maybe if I go back a few months before that, before that 1st of April, uh, there were a lot of different announcements by not just the Malaysian government, but by, by uh, our own neighbours, um, 
Thailand, Singapore, Indonesia about opening up our borders. But there were mixed messages. So at the beginning, there was a lot of uh, or some hesitancy because of those mixed messages and uh, unnecessary bureaucracy, I would say, regarding testing and documentation. And although those issues were sorted out, uh, I, I think it was done quite piecemeal, therefore not clearly communicated at one time. But we have started to see the recovery. Some hesitancy still exists, as from August 1st, all testing and, and documents and uh, so on have been done away with. But there's still some uh, wrong communication in this, and I believe the correct messages uh, do not necessarily uh, come to the forefront. And this is something that we really have to get corrected. I love that. I, I love the piecemeal approach uh, characterization. I think that's that's spot on. And like you said, you know, it. I don't think that's even just a Malaysian, the, the Malaysian approach to it. I think you know across ASEAN, we have seen this this very uncoordinated approach towards reopening and those mixed messages going out to tourists, and therefore recovery perhaps not reaching the the volumes that it was expected to, at least initially at the beginning. Junko, you oversee a wide range of different hospitality companies, um, and we're seeing a lot in the media and hearing a lot about issues around manpower and resource shortages. Is that something that you're also experiencing? Yes, in the, in the, in the five travel companies that uh, come under my purview, during the lockdown, especially the first year, year and a half, we had to reduce our the exposure to the difficult environment. And uh, during that time, some of our staff employees decided to seek alternative uh, activities. And indeed, some of them actually successfully entered doing business of this and that. But uh, so now that we have, we need more people again, a number have rejoined us, but uh, those who did make it good when they left us, uh, we still need to replace them with um, uh, and fill the gaps. But the ones more affected are the, um, I would say, the hotels and restaurants that used to depend a lot on foreign workers. And now the uh, process of recruiting workers from overseas is starting, but uh, restarting. But hotels and restaurants and even airports, for example, airport cleaners and, and baggage handlers, we're still shorthanded on those. So it's, it's still creating... Uh, manpower and uh, human resource issues in the uh, tourism industry in Malaysia. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's something that often gets overlooked. I was uh, watching a, an interview with the Malaysian finance minister yesterday, and he was talking about this tight domestic employment market, because unemployment is actually quite low in Malaysia right now. And as you said, there's just uh, restaurants and, and hotels are finding it difficult to, to find new staff because, you know, Malaysians um, are, are mostly in work right now. Yes, I think that there's fairly full, uh, not full employment, but quite good employment levels. And and, and perhaps the, the the issue there would be Malaysians uh, can then be choosy and, and, and not, not want to do the difficult or the dirty jobs that uh, we had to depend to be done by foreign workers at that time. And we, uh, Malaysians tend to want to look forward to... Uh, the easy jobs, I would say, when there are when choices that they can make. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So let's uh, let's have a little bit of a look at what's actually happening in the industry itself. I know these are still very, very early days, but are you noticing any shifting trends in the way that customers are booking travel at the moment, such as shorter book, booking windows or booking more on mobile or using different payment terms? Are we starting to see that develop or is it still too soon? There is definitely a change. You mentioned sh- shorter booking windows. This is uh, definitely there. It's causing... Um, Another set of problems too. Uh, FS are escalating due to demand, and uh, there's a lack of um, supply of seat capacity, and so there's also a trend towards uh, self-booking to OTAs, online travel agents, and booking platforms for hotel rooms and airline seats. So this is not healthy for traditional travel agents who need, therefore, to adapt and open channels for their customers to be able to book through them or with them online 24-7 as, as the, these other platforms are, are doing. This is a change that travel agents need to take a hold of and make sure it's done. Absolutely. And so one of your companies, Mitra Travel, is actually a more or less a corporate travel agency. It's an agency, a partner. So you mentioned there, you know, airfares are escalating, the lack of seat capacity. I mean, are you seeing corporate travel picking up in Malaysia regardless? Yeah, we, we have seen this uh, tremendous increase, actually, of travel or intent to travel by corporates as well as, uh, and we do as well a lot of government-related uh, organizations' bookings and travel arrangements. And this was happening last month and also this month, uh, as well as an even bigger upsurge of uh, bookings for intent to travel for the next during the next three months. Perhaps we're picking picking up business from some of the other travel agents that are not able to take care of uh, these demand because they do require quite a bit of working capital, uh, having to pay the airlines within two weeks of uh, of issuing the tickets, uh, but receiving payments from clients after four weeks or sometimes even longer. So that's that's a challenge that uh, travel agents. Uh, corporate travel agents or leisure travel agents had need to cope with and address. And I think this having having the right uh, backing, financial backing is quite important. And Tunku, what about mice? If, if we go back to the darkest days of the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of commentary that mice would be the, the most difficult sector of, of travel and tourism to bring back simply because you're gathering so many people in one place at one time. Most countries in our region are open. We are starting to see events happening again. What are your feelings about mice in Malaysia? Well, there's, there's some mice travel, and I would say mice travel, I would look at it both ways, actually, incoming and um, outgoing. Perhaps there's a lot of, there is a lot of potential for that domestically, and it's actually happening. But uh, we are also looking at, uh, in some forums, we've discussed the possibility of having uh, hybrid events as uh, having discovered the more efficient way of doing uh, online events, we should also look at this as combining with uh, in-person events with uh, online possibilities and therefore multiply or increase the number of um, participation in in MICE events. But we've seen for outbound and and domestic, we've seen quite an increase of uh, requests for quotations as well as tenders for incentive travel or 
some people call it reward travel by uh, banks, insurance companies, multi-level selling agents, uh, associations uh, for their staff and sellers uh, over the next three months. But we, and we see that as well for, um, with a request for proposals for similar travel for, for especially next year. So uh, there's quite a bit of mice uh, movements happening now. That's interesting. And, you know, like, like Gary said, that was a segment that people thought would be quite slow to pick up. But even I had a conversation with a Singaporean mice agent a couple of days ago, and she said the same, you know, they're receiving a lot of inquiries in. And people, I think especially companies are putting value on, you know, rebuilding that camaraderie also between staff members. And, you know, there's, there's, there's that aspect to it all as well. So you were, we were talking just then about outbound mice demand and incentive um, demand. How about for leisure? What's that current travel appetite like for outbound travel out from Malaysia at the moment? Well, it's, it's even, even before COVID, especially before COVID, traveling for holidays and traveling for holidays overseas as well has become a part of Malaysian lifestyle for those who could afford it. And so I believe the, the um, appetite is still huge. And uh, well, we're lucky that we uh, don't need visas to travel to most countries. I have friends in Indonesia, Thailand, wanting to travel to Europe and finding that the queue for Schengen visas is uh, up to two to three months, which is, you know, which will actually kill the desire to travel uh, because they have to plan ahead. So countries where Malaysians need to apply for visa to enter will be less popular. But nevertheless, there is a high interest or level of interest for travel to places like Australia and New Zealand, where Malaysians have traditionally gone to have their holidays. And many Malaysians have actually studied in Australia and New Zealand. And so these were places they would still want to travel to. Now, China has not opened up yet, and this will be more likely in 2023. And uh, we can see that China, having been a, a very strong destination uh, for Malaysians, uh, China, Hong Kong, Macau, uh, that will be, uh, I think, somewhere uh, we can look to in uh, the coming years or the coming or next year and the coming years. Yeah, it's interesting. Two points there, Tunku, that, that you, you've reference so far that I think are very interesting. You mentioned some of the destinations that Malaysians were very keen to travel to pre-pandemic. You also mentioned earlier that at the moment, there's still not enough flight seats. And we are starting to see some of the airlines starting to launch services to Australia, to New Zealand, not yet to, as you said, to China and to Macau. So I guess the, the outbound market will rely on the fact of airlines actually just providing those seats. Yes, undoubtedly, the seats need to be there. And then the lack of seats to uh, those, well, there's, there's no travel to those destinations if you don't have the seats. So um, Australia and New Zealand, I think the seats are still uh, lacking, but many airlines, several airlines have uh, announced plans to fly uh, in, the, in the last quarter and the next quarter, uh, next quarter of next year. And uh, so we'll be looking at that, those possibilities. Uh, but, but that's airline economics, you know, they, they, they need actually people to travel both ways. So it's not just having uh, Europeans or other people coming to this part of the world. They need people from this part of the world to be able to travel to, um, to Europe, for example, 
and so those those visas visa issues for not so much for malaysia but for other countries will will continue to be uh, a challenge if they cannot speed up the issuance of this for example schengen visas so we've talked about corporate travel, we've talked about leisure outbound. What about the domestic tourism situation? I, I was quite lucky during the pandemic to travel quite regularly around Malaysia. And I was kind of inspired by the fact Malaysians were traveling. They really stepped up to try and support their domestic industry when it was most needed. How do you see that sort of going in future? Do you think Malaysians will still continue to travel domestically? Or will they then turn, you know, once the airline seats are back, looking more towards overseas travel? Well, if, if if anything, or if you know the benefit or the benefit or the advantage that we've had out of the COVID pandemic has uh, been that Malaysians have found that there are wonderful attractions in our own country waiting to be discovered, and many did actually uh, take those steps to discover them. Of course, the allure of uh, overseas destinations will still be there, but we have several holiday periods in a year. And I'm sure the domestic, that domestic tourism will continue to be in vogue for the foreseeable future. Domestic tourism uh, destinations must see themselves, though, as competitors to foreign destinations. So uh, they need to continue promoting as well as innovating uh, so as to have a good share or fair share of the Malaysian travel market and not, not just allow uh, the foreign NTOs to be promoting in Malaysia and attracting Malaysians to go to Korea or Switzerland and elsewhere. That's super interesting, actually. I've never really thought about domestic tourism destinations having to think of you know international destinations as competitors, but you're spot on. They, they are. They absolutely are. So... Countries like Indonesia right now are saying that they want domestic tourism to count for even up to 60 or 70% of their tourism revenue in the future. Do you see Malaysia following suit? Do you think that they will focus more strongly on domestic tourism policies and promotions or are they going to focus still on the overseas market? Well, in, Indonesia has a huge population. I think it's some 270 or 75 million compared to Malaysia's uh, tiny 33 million. And it's certainly more achievable to for Indonesia to attain the level of tourism revenue from domestic tourism. And, and they have a, a larger variety of tourism attractions and uh, destinations throughout their very large country. Uh, in Malaysia's case, I suppose, uh, our facilities have more been geared up for international tourism in the past. And we need to focus I believe, in getting international high-value and high-yield tourists to still come to Malaysia to use our facilities. And I, I don't think we'll be able to achieve the same level that Indonesia is looking at, uh, but hopefully uh, still a good level, higher than what it has been in the past. As you mentioned earlier, some of the key markets for the region, Northeast Asia, you mentioned China, they're either closed at the moment or there are still travel restrictions for people to go out and, and to return to those countries. In that context, you know, what can Tourism Malaysia do to actually encourage more international tourists to visit at this time when, you know, when they're most needed? Well, Chinese, uh, the China's outbound uh, market, I think, are still going to be elusive even in 2023. Uh, not the same level, far from the same level that it used to be uh, 2019 and earlier. 
But we can focus on other regional tourists uh, from India, for example, the Indian subcontinent, India and Pakistan. Uh, in addition to our immediate neighbors, we have uh, Singapore, of course, Indonesia, which is uh, the last, second largest arrivals into Malaysia, as well as Thailand. And these, these markets will find accessibility into Malaysia to be not a problem at all. These areas or these regional uh, tourism uh, markets should still be should be in our focus uh, in the coming period. Yeah, I would agree. I think that there there needs to be this focus also on ASEAN. And you know, the the reality is that, like you say, airfares are still high, and long haul coming into ASEAN at the end of the year, it's not guaranteed. You know, there's this huge cost of living crisis going on in Europe right now. It, it makes sense to focus on on the neighboring countries for sure. So I wanted to circle back to manpower and we were talking about how that's been an issue and you were saying that previously some of your staff have gone on and, and went into other industries. And I was curious, you know, as an ad adjunct professor at Taylor's University, you obviously see students pursuing um, studies in hospitality. What can we do to encourage these students to pursue a career in the hospitality sector when they might be thinking right now that the industry is not particularly attractive and not a stable one? Yes, Hannah. I think we, we need to uh, perhaps go back uh, to some basics uh, with, with uh, young people. I've always had in mind or had the thought that we need to instill the interest in uh, the in tourism as a career at the school level and actually introduce uh, subjects that are uh, such as tourism studies in international schools. We, we see this uh, in, in other places, in, in the UK, in Australia. At school levels, they have subjects that pertain to uh, tourism. There are already so many colleges and universities offering uh, tourism and hospitality programs, Taylor's University that you mentioned being one of them, students who uh, will take on the uh, tourism subject at school level hopefully will decide to choose hospitality and tourism for their tertiary studies and lead, lead them to uh, looking at that for a career. But one, one, one aspect that I uh, feel in Malaysia and especially so all around the world that Hospitality and tourism workers are not necessarily paid attractive wages, and uh, especially, for example, in, in hospitality, in, in, in hotels and restaurants, employers look at having tips and service charges to supplement the, the uh, incomes of, of their staff who work in their sector, whereas they should actually be paying a good wage uh, for them to want to enter the industry and remain in the industry and see uh, the industry as being competitive to some other industries. So as we start to sum up, we've covered a lot of ground today, Tonka. We've, we've really um, sort of dived quite deeply into what's happening here in Malaysia and, and in ASEAN. And I think two main themes for me have come out. One is that the region and Malaysia, of course, we're playing catch up. You know, these are still early days. And I think there are still a, a great number of uncertainties about how this recovery actually rolls out. If you look ahead for the rest of this year, for 2022, what are your opinions? What do you see as the challenges for Malaysia in particular over the next few months? 
Well, actually, 20, the balance of 2022 is actually uh, almost upon us uh, right now. But uh, both Malaysia and ASEAN has been generally dependent in the past on the Chinese outbound market. And we need to have a conscious and strategic shift uh, to other markets that cumulatively can uh, help to offset the gap left by the lack of travelers from China. And as I mentioned earlier about India, and we even have uh, Korea. Uh, we see Korean travel into Sabah, for example, with charter flights uh, starting to happen. And um, even ASEAN's neighbors, uh, Vietnam, Vietnamese are traveling out, and the Thais and, and the Indonesians, as I mentioned also. So these are markets that we really should look to uh, in this uh, the balance of the year, because they, they are like Malaysians, they, they can travel at shorter notice uh, as compared to, uh, let's say, the Europeans and or the Australasians from longer haul. And uh, I think the other part that needs to be done is the, the flights have to be uh, mounted so that the supply and demand divide is uh, more balanced out and that more seats flying at low fares, lower fares, hopefully equals to more more bumps and seats. So we need we need to have the travelers coming in and out of our region uh, in order for tourism to be invigorated again. Definitely. I mean, and these are still very early days when it comes to travel recovery. But looking at 2023, are you optimistic overall? I, I am optimistic. But we, we see wars and tensions such as Ukraine and uh, also China over the Taiwan issue. Uh, I hope they will not remain as a black cloud over over this region or over the world, and fuel prices will become uh, more reasonable and uh, help to to create a, a lower level of inflation. And uh, we need to remove uncertainties. I think for people having in the travel plans, they need to be able to plan more clearly and say, okay, I'm going to be traveling here, and I'm not. I don't have to be worried about fuel increases, uh, increase in costs, visa, visa, visa issues, and so on. So um, we need to have all those in place for people to become, for the industry to become more optimistic about 2023 and going forward. And so finally, Tunku, on a personal note, what are your own travel aspirations for the rest of this year and maybe early into next year? My first travel, uh, major travel, post-COVID lockdown was to Europe. Uh, that was last year, uh, to Europe and the UAE for a couple of conferences and to, I decided to visit uh, Expo in, in Dubai. But that was last year. For this year, we have planned, my family has planned, a long postponed family holiday to uh, the Gold Coast in Australia uh, next month. And uh, the month after that, I will be attending the APG uh, annual conference in Malta as well as the PATA annual summit in, in the UAE. So those are the upcoming travel for me. And uh, in November, I think a trip to Nepal is in the books uh, for that's both work and a little bit of uh, personal time, a bit of what's known as these days as leisure, business and leisure. So I hope to have a bit of that too before the year ends. Oh, you're going to be busy then, Tunku. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm so happy you squeezed this in. 
So that brings us to the end of this week's show. Our grateful thanks to Tunku for sharing his insights with us today. We hope you all enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. And please remember that if you do tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a quick rating and a review, that will help other people to find our show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia with you then. 